Nonne Solomon Dominatus Demonum Est He's come back to finish what you interrupted and each time he kills he can bring back another of his minions unless you stop him Welcome to Now Playing's Sometimes They Come Back Retrospective Series Hello baby <laughs> Part of the now playing Stephen King podcast review series. There's no stopping this heavy flow. Hosted by Arnie. He's not like regular people. He's different. Stuart. Oh, he's a tough man. He ain't scared any. And Jacob. Well, they're not human. They're what's left when the humanity has been sucked out of them. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Yeah, we'll keep that in mind. Listener discretion is advised. Time to rock, Jock. <laughs> Today we're discussing Sometimes They Come Back for More. Starring Clayton Rohner, Faith Ford, Max Perlich, Chase Masterson. Directed by Daniel Zellick Burke. I'm Arnie. The now playing co-host that doesn't think he can take anymore. Yeah, sometimes they wish they never signed on to King, like Stuart in L.A. <laughs> this is Jacob, and guys, sometimes we always come back for more. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's a franchise, better or for worse, uh, I guess here we are, back for more. Yeah, I gotta cross every whatever, T-I, whatever this is. I, I, I argue right up at the top here. I read the story... I saw connections between the first and the second, but is this a sequel or is this just some creative marketing here? Can they really get away with calling this part of the same story as the last two when we're in Antarctica? I did know going in and I knew nothing about this movie or any of the sometimes sequels going into this retrospective. But what I did know is that in other countries, this was released Without, sometimes they come back as the title. It was often called Frozen. Isn't that a Disney film that just won a bunch of awards? (laughs) Let it go. I'm ready to let it go, by the way. In Australia, it was just released as Ice Station Erebus. Because that sounds more enticing than sometimes they come back for more. It does to me because it means we'd never cover it. (laughs) So I came in thinking that this might be almost like House 3 or Zombie 2 or so many of those not-really-a-sequel kind of sequel films. And I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't expect Antarctica. No. I I have to wonder if this is an opportunism. The director of the last movie, Adam Grossman, is the screenwriter of this movie. I have to think that this was the one that he wanted to make after the last one and maybe he just made a few quick changes to the script and changed the title to get it funded no one wanted to make ice station erebus but they were okay with making a sequel to a mildly profitable direct vhs horror hit it's possible as you might imagine on such a underwhelming film one that had so little impact on anyone as this film direct to video and pretty much forgotten there is so little information i could dig up my book of stephen king that had two pages on the rage carry 2 basically spent four paragraphs on this and like oh yeah by the way faith ford from 
Murphy Brown feature film debut. And yeah, I do love that. <laughs> if they're going to have some callbacks, if this is a tie in any way to the other two, yeah, washed up sitcom star, check the box. They're here. Michael Gross last time. Now we got Faith Ford. I'm, I'm glad to see that. Hey, this cast is one of which I am quite familiar. Only you, Arnie. I'm watching mm. this. I'm like, I think I saw that person on a TV show once. But yes, tell us who all these people are. Well, do you guys not know Clayton Roner? Sam Cage, our lead in this? I saw that he's going to be in Human Centipede 3, but no, I don't know him <laughs> from anything else. Really? I didn't know he was going to be in that. But I haven't seen him in almost 30 years, but when I last saw him was in just one of the guys when he was playing the somewhat geeky love interest, and he looks the same. I got through my adolescence without ever seeing just one of the guys. Yeah, I saw that about 30 years ago. Don't recall. First time I saw boobs in the theater. So <laughs> he's still working, and IMDb tells me that he is a working actor in Hollywood. Mm, this didn't kill his career. And then, of course, Major Callie O'Grady, Chase Masterson. Uh, what, what, just just uh, drop the 40-year-old movie on us now. Yeah, right. Deep Space Nine, folks. She was the sexy waitress for several <laughs> seasons of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I uh, miss that. It, it, it's almost a D-list cast. You're right. Mm, mm. <laughs> I did know Max Perlich. He's sort of a character actor. He's the Shabansky character. He was on Homicide for a while. He Drugstore Cowboy. He was in indie movies, and he's always playing that kind of uh, East Coast type. He's kind of a, gotten away with giving non-performances his whole career. I knew him as Whistler from two episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But they were important episodes. Did he play the same part with that accent? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think he's incapable of doing anything else. But it, it's effective when used properly. That's all I could say I recognized. Faith Ford and that guy. Yeah, those were the four who I knew just from face recognition. The rest of the cast, well, there's not much more of a cast. Mm. This is a very small cast. Mm-hmm. Small ambition, small sets, yeah, small impact on the world. Let's make it a small show. Arnie, why don't you just give us the plot we can get into it? Well, it's a small plot. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. Ice Station Erebus is an illegal military drilling station in Antarctica. But when they drill too deep, they uncover something that causes Carl Schilling to try and kill his five fellow troops at the station. He succeeds in killing three before two MPs, Captain Sam Cage and Major Callie O'Grady, go to investigate and find only two survivors. The station doctor, Jennifer Wells, played by Murphy Brown's Faith Ford, and Lieutenant Shabansky. Well, surprises come on top of surprises. <laughs> First, we discover that Schilling and Cage are half-brothers with a longtime grudge as Schilling stole Cage's fiance back in the war. Wasn't she a nun, too? Like, that was really something. No, we'll talk about it. <laughs> okay. Then we find out the war that this happened in was World War One, and both Schilling and Cage are immortal half-demons. And Schilling didn't sleep with Cage's fiance. He tortured and killed her. Finally, we realize Schilling has been killing those at the station as part of a ritual. In the mines, Schilling found an altar that would allow Satan to cross onto Earth to rule. Schilling has been killing the others, but then bringing them back to life as minions to serve in the ritual. Callie is killed, and the last human needed is Dr. Wells. But Cage has fallen for the good doctor, and so he defends her, killing his brother and stopping Satan from ascending. And a rescue chopper arrives just in time for credits to roll. 
Now, if I wasn't already thinking John Carpenter from the fact that they're going to Antarctica, watching these credits with the way they draw it out, you know, cutting to darkness and credits, and then we get a long pause, and then we get a little clip on the Antarctica and back. I mean, this is almost shot for shot. It's not shot for shot because they can't afford to shoot on location. They can't <laughs> afford a dog. Yeah, exactly. But this is clearly emulating in every possible way that they technically can on their budget. John Carpenter's the thing. Yeah, you know what surprised me? I was expecting, silly me, just another, you know, someone goes back to their hometown and there's going to be more grease or ghosts to bug them. This film starts, and before we even see that, it's in the Antarctic. <laughs> okay, I totally get the Carpenter feeling when that's revealed. But I'm looking at the font. This may be the first time we talk about fonts for credits. But it's like this Celtic font. And I'm like, are we going to get a leprechaun story? Are we getting druids? Where is this going? <laughs> It's really this faux Celtic font that they use. I, it was just weird. And then, nope, cut to Antarctica. We're doing John Carpenter's The Thing or something. Yeah, you know, I wasn't so much noticing the font as what was above the title. They're still using Stephen King's name. I mean, he sued to get his name off better films. Like, I don't know how they get away with saying that this is based on his characters. There's not a greaser among them. Well... There is one thing in this that really does do it. And I wonder also if the rights are a little bit looser for sequels because they just have to expand upon the story. But this book, Raising Demons, is straight from that short story. So it still has a lot of the things going in the same direction. The altar, the pentagram, or as they call it here for some reason, a pentacle. Yeah. I think it's to remind us of the pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was to remind us of a monocle like the peanut man, but <laughs> I thought they didn't know the difference. <laughs> but all of this is from King's book. So the origin of the coming back or how they fight something about demons is involved. So I guess it's tenuous enough. Even Jim Norman gets a mention. Yeah, they do tie it back to that one. So yes, King has sued to get his name off of the lawnmower man, but here they feel confident and either it was low budget enough and under the radar enough that King just didn't care to sue. I mean, I guess you can only sue for profits if a movie makes money, right? Right. Blood from a stone is what I'm thinking about right now. There's nothing here on screen. So what makes him think he could get a nickel for suing them? I, I totally agree. And you know what? Is this the bad approach? I mean, obviously, it makes for a terrible sequel in continuity, but aren't you kind of glad that we're not going to get more guys remembering when a greaser hurt their sibling? I mean, there's no need to do it again. I mean, there's no need for more of what we've seen. So if it's going to be, air quotes, an original movie, I guess I'm cool with that. I mean, I did like John Carpenter's thing an awful lot. I could probably go on with a knockoff, all right? I mean, it was popular at the time. I want to point out it was popular to knock off that story. There was Virus in theaters at the same time. Jamie Lee Curtis had her little thing rip off. The Thing video game that we talked about in that podcast series. Yeah, Smilla's Sense of Snow. Woo, boy, that's, that's worse than this, actually. But that, <laughs> that, that was a popular book and a really terrible film. Well, as far as continuing the last one, the only thing I would have liked, and God help me, I never thought I'd say this, I would have liked Alexis Arquette to come back and reprise that character. I don't know if maybe he'd gone more femme by this time and couldn't do it, but if you were going to have a sequel with that character coming back, I'd have been all over it because I think he was 
every bit as hammy as a Robert Englund performance. Not as good, but as hammy. But here, when we get this opening with John Carpenter, I'm hitting the reset button. I'm forgetting Greasers and Michael Gross and all that's come before. It's my mistake to do so, as the movie will later slap me in the face with it. But I'm forgetting all of that and going, okay, we've got something new here. And they're going after something I really, really like. John Carpenter's the thing. You've got the people in the white outfits. You've got all this going on. I mean, I am actually finding my expectations raised higher than they've been for a Stephen King film since perhaps Cat's Eye as this is starting. Just because it is so different and to go to Antarctica, so ambitious. And I'm thinking, what is it? Is it sometimes they come back as someone we might know and it's hidden among us and we have to figure out who's really our friend and all of that? I would be game for a thing knockoff all the way. I was quite sure when we heard the setup of this that there was a mining expedition and they found something on level six of that mind. I was a hundred percent sure at the start of this, they were going to find a UFO. I was sure that they were going to take that from Carpenter. I'm wrong, but I thought that this was going to be a story about extraterrestrials. That's what it set me up for here by following this Antarctic John Carpenter kind of vibe. I thought that, yeah, sometimes what comes back is from outer space. Yeah, it could be. You could take that entire title and be like, they came a million years ago and now they've come back. Well, yes and no, but I mean, they definitely go more occult and it's in the title. They Low budget horror movies love to do this. They always want to create a metaphor with the naming of their station. Ice Station Erebus. Erebus is Greek myth for the personification of darkness and chaos. So could anything good happen here? <laughs> Do you think you're going to find gold in that mine? I mean, why would anything positive happen to these six people who are under the cover of darkness illegally mining Antarctica? Yeah, why even bother naming your ice station? If it's an illegal operation, government operation that, you know, even if something goes wrong, the government's not going to acknowledge it. They're, they're going to deny everything. I don't know. Maybe that's why you do give it a bad omen and give it such a dark name. Maybe I missed it, but do we know what they're mining for? No. I presume oil? The thing is, if you're drilling for oil, you set up a drill and you drill straight down. You don't create this labyrinthine underground complex that is six stories deep. Each floor happens almost like a video game where you have to, like Doom, you go through a level and then you go to the next one. So it's more like they're excavating than drilling. So that's why oil didn't make sense to me. Yeah, I was waiting for some kind of reveal, like, why were they there? What did they find? I take it at the end, uh, what, Schilling devised this whole thing because he knew there was a pentacle underneath the ice? I'm never quite sure what it, why they initially go there. Yes, somebody knew that there was this occult thing there, and the who's in on it and who's not, we can try and decipher that as we go through. I'm a little bit like Faith Ford at the end of this movie. I don't know what I just saw. I don't understand it, <laughs> but we can parse it through. But yes, I presume that somebody from the very beginning, when they put the flag in the ice, said, we're going to finally get to the thing. It's the actual portal in which Satan can come through. And so that is what they're digging for. Now, what they're telling everyone else that isn't so cool with Satan, what they're doing, I don't know. I presumed it was an oil drilling where those claims haven't been made yet. Schilling has been in the army for 80 years. He's probably like a five-star general by this point, <laughs> and nobody questions him. 
Brings me to my first question. Schilling is, yes, the big bad guy. He is the half-brother of our hero. Does our hero get sent on this mission because they know they're half-brothers? Or is that something that no one at all knows except Schilling and Cage? I took it to be happenstance. I Because of the budget of this film, there are only two military police in this entire military, and he happens to be one of them. You know, I actually kind of got a Wolverine Sabretooth vibe. Like, <laughs> these two dudes that have, like, fought in every war together, and sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're not. I don't think people know they're immortal. I think it was just happenstance that he got sent to go deal with this. No, I'm sure that they don't know that they've been fighting in wars, and we don't even know what side they were fighting World War One on, but more simply, why do they want drunk Sam Cage to go to Antarctica? What about him, this character, this actor, this performance, what about any of this is something that you'd want to make the center of a movie? You're thinking that they have motivations in this film. I think that's your first flaw. Might be. I took it as he was sent in because it was his brother and if he's gone crazy. And I'm just giving this movie a lot. This is right. my okay. made-up explanation. Sure. This, what, this is Heart of Darkness and the snow? Yeah, something like that. Like, if he has gone insane, you send in somebody who can reason with him and somebody who has served with him who just happens to be an MP. I mean, keep in mind, it is hard to get to Antarctica. It is really fucking hard to get there and harder to get back. So if this happened and these people were there, they had to be somewhere near there anyway, right? Yeah, I, you, it could have been close proximity. It could have been, as you said, that they knew that they were had a history related or not, that he could be someone. It does have a Apocalypse Now vibe to it. I mean, just when they're showing the dossier and the photos and all of that, I think we're supposed to think Marlon Brando, Kurt, is this shilling guy, and he's our Martin Sheen, drunk and trying to pull himself together to go back to face it. Now, did you guys catch the subliminal nudity in the opening, though, when they're arriving at the base and Carl sees this dead body in the snow and suddenly it superimposed a naked woman buried in the sand? Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's how they're doing their flashbacks. At least they're nudity. Maybe that's a bit necrophiliac, but... <laughs> But instead of these long, drawn-out with piano music flashbacks where we've grown accustomed to in the last two films, it's a different way to go. It is strange. I didn't put it together and, and still don't see that the flashbacks are exactly the same kind of guilt-ridden flashbacks as we've had in the previous two sometimes movies. Uh, what we have here is someone that hasn't gotten over a girlfriend. And so everywhere he goes, he's seeing her, but he's not necessarily regretful about anything he said or did. She died, right? Schilling killed her? Or... Let's go through this backstory. <laughs> <Or something> yeah, though... <laughs> let's start there. This is revealed near the end of the movie. Mm. But I really, since it is backstory to the movie and backstory to these characters, I think it would help me to understand <laughs> these characters if we can <laughs> decipher this. If we can, yes. Because we've got Cage, and he's talking to Callie, and talking about how this was his brother, and they serve together in the war. And they appear in this desert. I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to place their age, and this came out in the late 90s, so it's the first Iraq war, right? Yeah, I took it as that at first, but then you look at their uniforms, I'm like, those are strange uniforms. They look too old to be Iraqi uniforms. What? I found it confusing. I'm like, you know, it doesn't help that they're on this just this bad back lot where they threw some sand to 
dig up a grave, I guess. Lawrence of Arabia, it wasn't, no. (laughs) But the outfits, you had a closer eye than I did. I was more concerned about his fiancée, Mary, and what she's wearing. I'm like, oh, is she an Iraqi? Because she has headgear. Like Stuart said, (laughs) is she a nun? She has a habit on, right? Yes, she's Catholic. She's she's God's wife. No, she's She's a a nurse. nurse. Okay, so that is just a nurse uniform. That's not a nun nurse. No, it's her Florence Nightingale hat. Yes. Okay. And our main character, Cage, has one hell of a Florence Nightingale complex going on, because in this war, he falls in love with Mary. Later, he falls in love with the Erebus station doctor. So any military medical person will do for him. <laughs> right. Now, is this supposed to... I, I don't know all the fronts that World War One was fought on. Did we fight in Egypt? Because later on, I think there's some Egyptian ghosts doing, like, walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm wondering why. They never come back. We just see them. The, of all things, that's something that never comes back. I thought that was some kind of Middle Eastern. And again, I actually was, once I figured out World War One, thinking about T.E. Lawrence and that kind of thing. I, I think these were costumes they had at the ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they're, they're nostalgia costumes. They are not contemporary uniforms. They tell you this is period. Now, what period? It doesn't make clear. The only reason we know it's World War I, guys, is because there's a ring with it inscribed that says, to Mary 1916. Ah, I didn't even catch the inscription so much as at the very end, Schilling says, I killed Mary 80 years ago. So I just did the math. Okay. Well, either way you come to it, we're still shrugging when we (laughs) find this backstory. Little details. We know that at some point it's explained that Schilling took this woman away from Cage. Now, I don't know whether that means come in the middle of the night with a bag and like swoop her away or wine and dine her. And now she loves Schilling more than she likes Cage. But she ends up lying on a table and dying, I think, because somebody ends up on a funeral pyre. All right. No, 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 no. It gets much worse than this. I actually, (laughs) I went back and watched this flashback twice to try to figure this shit out. Yeah, you'd have to at, at least twice. You couldn't make me, but I'm glad you did. (laughs) Because it's acted out before us. It would be far more confusing, or maybe we just write it off and say it's this is what he says and we'll go with it. But we actually see Cage and Mary in this war, in this flashback, right? And what he says, and this is where I realized she wasn't Arabic, was she was being sent home the next day. So now I'm like, okay, so she is American, not just a white woman pretending to be Middle Eastern. So she was going home the next day. They were in love, so they got engaged, and they had to get married quickly before the next day, okay? So it's Saturday. She's leaving Sunday. They got to get married. Wait, they've got to get married in the foreign country rather than go back and have a nice American wedding? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Makes no No, sense. It's not like he... (laughs) was going to get citizenship. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, I see. He's not American. No, no. I said it's not like that. But he's maybe he's not. He's demonic. We don't know when he was born. That's true. Or what side they're fighting on or any of this. But okay. So with the pressure on that she's going to leave, he feels like if out of sight, she'll fall in love with somebody else. I got to I gotta get a ring on it. So yeah. that's he, he had it inscribed and on her finger within a couple of hours. And they were to be betrothed. And then what? And then he says, 
But Schilling stole her away from me. And what we see is literally Schilling walks up and she leaps in his arms and hugs him. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, that is not true love. If you're Was like, he the best man? Or, or, or like, is that the wedding? Like, this is a fickle woman if indeed this is her wedding day and she's doing that. Exactly. I'm like, what the hell happened? You got to blame the woman at least 50%. If you're like, will you marry me? Yes, yes, I love you. I love you. Oh, it's your brother. I'll be back. (laughs) Well, maybe Schilling was using his demon powers. I don't know, because it does look like a sacrifice. I didn't rewind the movie to go look at that map of the world to see where different sacrifices took place to see if Mary's name was on there. But that was my guess that that's why he when he said he shilling took her away that that was a euphemism for murdering her and see i wouldn't trust anything cage says because he's an idiot here maybe in his (laughs) mind they were engaged and she hadn't even (laughs) said hello to him i mean we don't see that so who knows this could be very one-sided this man becomes quite literally delusional later in the movie when we get back to present day so i wouldn't put it past him but Cage, he is the one digging, he's digging a grave, right? He's burying Mary while Schilling, I don't know, slips on lemonade and watches. Yeah, and Schilling took her away, presumably to fuck her, but no, <laughs> to kill her. And then when we get to the second flashback very late in the film, when we find out they're half demons, Schilling's like, you want a piece of this? And he literally means a piece. Cut yourself off some, we're demons. Let's kill her. And she feels all betrayed by her fiance that he would partake in her murder i guess you would yes <laughs> well yeah. well, she's the one that jumped into another dude's arms after 12 hours 12 hours five minutes <laughs> yeah I, i'm not liking anyone here but yeah as we're parsing through this i guess it's making a little more sense uh, as much as it's going to and we should make it clear that these are our best guesses at what's going on it's right. not very clear in this film Unlike the other two movies, the flashbacks are really short and, yeah, obscure. I felt like they really belabor all the pain and suffering and guilt of the past in those other ones. But here it's like, yeah, it's a mystery as to what's really going on. We were inferring from quick cuts. And I really can't tell if what we're seeing is like an abstract impressionistic style. Is it supposed to be like a perfume ad when she walks into Schilling's arms? Is that not supposed to be literal? Like they just got engaged and she goes into his arms. Is it supposed to be metaphor in front of our eyes? Or am I thinking that these directors and writers are deeper than they really are? And it really was just, oh, yes, I love you. Oh, boyfriend. I don't think it matters one way or the other, because Mary really is not... I don't know. Cage is still obsessed with her, but she doesn't really come back. I mean, she does a curtain call at the end here, but for the most part, she doesn't really play a factor. I I think Jacob might be onto something. Maybe she's a sacrifice, and now there's going to be another sacrifice, and it just happens to be the girl that Cage is going to fall in love with again uh, once he gets here to Ice Station Erebus. One last thing, though, on the sacrifice. I got from Cage's ramblings at the end, that everywhere Schilling went, he massacred people. That being a demon, he was just murderous. Sure. Well, maybe he only went to, like, the 15 places that we see on the map. And that's where he was murderous. What you're referring to is, once we get back to Erebus, in Schilling's room, there is a big world map in which points of interest are marked in blood and then someone drew stars or pentagrams or whatever between them as if there were connections and in those connections 
are the two movies from the last time, which I got to say were not done by Schilling. So not all of those killings were Schilling. Not all of them were by his hand. Who knows what the... I mean, at one point, one of those pinnacle tips is in the Bermuda Triangle. I mean, did it happen underwater, on a cruise? It's not even <laughs> clear that, that that this is where murders have happened. No, I took it as each point of the pentagram is where someone came back. I never took it as Schilling did a murder here, but these were the spots where the magic of Satan is close enough to allow the resurrection of dead. Then why would do they have Jim Norman's name and not one of the greasers? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Michael Gross's character's name and Tim Matheson's character name. Did he die? He didn't even die, at least that we know of. Well, he died in the second one, yeah. Michael Gross is still alive. Uh, Michael Gross, who knows? I mean, he probably saw the film and just fucking <laughs> fell over. <laughs> I haven't seen him again. No, he still went back for Tremors 3. But because somebody applied that pentagram really, really badly, and one of the tips dripped all the way down the map to the Antarctic, that means that everything is building up to this moment here at Ice Station Erebus. This is everything that we saw in the other two movies and everywhere else where they came back has been building to the moment here with these six people in a ice station the size of a New York apartment. I yes, mean, I was waiting a... for something built. I was waiting for something larger to build from those two films, and here it is, my dream in an ice station. Hey, it's Satan, at least. I mean, this location is tiny. There's no room to maneuver in here. They walk in, and Faith Ford is shooting at them from literally three feet away. And Faith Ford, Corky from <laughs> Murphy Brown. You know, I actually watched Murphy Brown for quite a few seasons when I was a teenager. I always thought she was cute. It's amazing what no makeup can do. <laughs> Oh, she's not uncute here. It's just one wonders why her agent couldn't get her anything else. I mean, like Murphy Brown ended and a couple months later she's on this set, right? I mean, no gap in between there. This is her next gig after the successful multiple Emmy winning CBS series. It's actually conceivable that she filmed this even beforehand. I mean, Murphy Brown ended the same year this came out. So this was probably filmed on the hiatus during Murphy Brown. Okay. So either Faith Ford is a hidden Satanist and wanted to do this for religious reasons, or somebody had some dirty pics on girl and she had to show up or they would get released. But there is no reason to believe that, yes, cute little Corky needed to be in this film at all. I mean, it's it's a stunner. I mean, the, even Michael Gross coming off Family Ties seven years later made more sense last week than this does. At least he was playing a father, and he was known for playing a father. Here, she's playing a gun-toting military doctor. <laughs> I mean, you gotta think that the casting agent's like, well, shit, she's totally wrong for the part. But she's a name! <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I do not know why they'd want her. Well, I know why they'd want her. She is a name, but I do not know why they'd want her in this part. I don't know why they need a medic at this station if there's only six people. I mean, can't they just, like, open a pack of Band-Aids here? I mean, th th there's a medic and a techie, and truly, if this thing is being run by a cultist, they ought to have just kept it to a skeleton crew here. They These are worthless crew members. <laughs> I think six people is a skeleton crew, and I think having a doctor is vital to the survival of the other five i i would say if a satanist is the one devising this you need six people to murder 
Yeah, you, you don't want to get the weapons expert on your team. You <laughs> want the medical doctor, so easy kill. Even more than that, if you need six people to kill, how about bringing a sixth person and not just cross your fingers that they send one human MP? Just enough! <laughs> That's true, I forget. that Everything that we all learn from this book on raising demons is that Satan can only come back through a circle of eight. So it requires the sixth staff of this Erebus plus the two military cops that are showing up. Everyone is a part of the plot, whether they knew it or not. There is no slack in that body budget at all. He's lucky they sent two. Now, there's nothing special about the when, right? There's no ticking clock in this. It's for as long as they have the portal there, they just need the bodies. So if this no, doesn't no, no. work out... Oh, there is a ticking clock? There I... is a ticking clock. Uh, there's some gibberish about the circle of eight every thousand years they have to do that. I put circle of eight, thousand years, blah, blah, blah. There's a bunch of jargon, but yes, yeah. th there's one day that they could perform this ceremony. Yeah, his garble is very clear. It's all happening now. That's Oh, that's right. He does say on the day of the portal. I don't know what day is portal day. I don't get that off work. <laughs> <No>. But <laughs> yes, on the day of the portal, you can raise Satan himself. And it has to, in fact, be six humans. So he's again lucky there were at least one in those MPs that came. And there was something also about, and one of them has to be one of his own. So he needed his half-brother there. I don't know if he arranged for Cage to be the one to come or whether that was lucky happenstance. But yeah, if it had just been O'Grady, he would have been screwed. If it had been anyone other than Cage, he would have been screwed with this portal plan. He'd have to wait another thousand years. So the other person there who we really haven't talked too much about is that Tech Shabansky. Now, it's revealed later in the film that Shabansky is a... A zombie, right? A walking dead. Because what Schilling is doing is he's killing people, but then like a faith healer putting his hand on their forehead and they rise again. Yeah, I thought that was a weird, you know, again, where you were used to, you kill someone so another demon could come back. Now he's just killing people. I guess he could raise them to be zombies and attack the living and then make them dead again so they could lie in their pentacle underneath the ice. It's easier than carrying them if they can walk on their own. <laughs> they do have to go down six levels. <laughs> They've never been in the mine. That, we'll, we'll find out that Shabansky and Faith Ward have never been in this mine. They have to build a little robot to go in and take a look at it because it's too cold outside and they don't know what is the, down there. But is Shabansky bad the whole time? I'm taking it that he was because at it's pretty late in the movie that his little hat gets knocked off and yes. you see the pentacle on it, the forehead, saying he's evil. So does that mean from the very beginning he is the undead and the whole time he pretends to help by making this little vehicle and things, he's really been an inside man for shilling? I don't think so because he's the one that's arguing they need to leave. He's the whole one that's making jokes about the fact that they, they need to get out of there. Hell is frozen over and they got to get out of there. So maybe that was a clue. He said hell froze over. Maybe he was making a joke for himself. I thought he was writing the copy for the DVD cover. <laughs> he did that too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought that he legitimately wanted to get out of there and would have hopped on a chopper if they had actually landed it. Yeah, at one point, there's an argument they go to use the radio, and it's been smashed, and Cage thinks it might have been Chabansky. I, again, with this film, who knows? I, it wouldn't make sense for Chabansky to be building this robot so they could search the mines and find out the whole plot. 
But is there ever a point where we see like Chabansky cornered and we're like, oh, he's going to die. But then he walks out all fine. That would be your signal that, oh, something else might have happened. He might have had that pentacle stamped on his head and we just don't know yet. I'm really confused about the action that happens in the middle of this movie. We've described the setup. We've hinted at where it's all going. The middle of this oh my God, people are dead, they're coming back alive, <laughs> someone wakes up and they're being dragged away to the mine. And I, I, I can't tell who's who. I mean, because there's three other zombie guys that come in and out of this. We've named the actors that we do know, and those are the ones we're focusing on. But there's three other dudes coming in and out of this that are attacking willy-nilly style. And I have no idea what their method is, what's driving them, who's in on it, who's dead, who's not. There are times in this film when the action takes place outside in a blizzard, and I just see white. I, I, I could be watching white noise on my TV at that moment. <laughs> I, it's it's incomprehensible. I mean, they. I guess we could praise their authenticity, the way they wear like these white snow suits that would be camouflage because I can't see them in all that snow. Well, later Cage goes out there and he doesn't even put on the face mask on or gloves. I mean, I'm thinking about Christmas Story. I, that hand is going to stick to that gun. <laughs> Yeah, it's like minus 60 or something out. 80, negative 80 degrees. Here's the thing, though. This pays off because I'm thinking Cage is an idiot because I'm also thinking everybody outside is dead. And at one point, Cage goes, if he can take the cold, I can take the cold. And I'm like, but he's dead. You're alive. No, no. They're both half demons. He can take the cold. Because hell's so cold? It's so hot. Because they're immortal. You can't kill them unless you do, which happens at the end. But (laughs) really, they're immortal. (laughs) Pretty simply, by the way, I'd add. But yeah, okay. I mean, yes, maybe that was a clever tip off to the fact that we should think that Cage is actually not human. Or we could just see it as a ridiculous inconsistency because they didn't want to have their actor's face hidden under snowsuits the whole time. So they just had them take off the mask after they got in the first time, and now we'll be able to recognize them wherever they walk. But I will agree that the quote-unquote action for the bulk of this movie is exceedingly confusing. They keep going into the cave and finding really nothing and coming back. They find a dead body. They put him in a room because you really want him to stink up the place. They go back. He's gone. Some bodies are being dragged. Some bodies are getting up and going. We do get a quick cut of one of the bodies opening its eyes when a hand is put on its forehead, but there is so much going back and forth, and the problem is, I'm used to a body count in my horror films. Here, we have a total of five living actors in the entire movie. Schilling, and then the four in the station, they kill one of them. They kill poor Callie, and I thought she actually died earlier than she did. She gets a little bit out of it. She gets sick because of fumes in the cave and starts throwing up. I thought it might be a mystical thing. No, I guess it's just fumes from the cave. But eventually Chase Masterson dies, and then there were four, and that's the end of the body count. Yeah, and there's no joy to the kills. I mean, if you're wanting to experience this just as low-rent slasher, very little blood. I mean, someone does get an axe through them. But other than that, there's very little blood. It's it's no makeup effects, no gore. Yeah, I don't even know what killed that woman at all. Yeah, I guess she just gagged on the fumes and died that way. But 
No, eventually she was murdered. By how? Well, like, her throat slashed or something, right? Yeah. It's so difficult to tell. I mean, the camera work in this is so clumsy, we can't even tell. And this is partly why you don't see too many slasher movies in the Arctic, is because it's a difficult shoot. You want to be able to see skin, right? We have two women here. They'd want to have them parade in their panties, right? But... They're not able to do that because they have to wear these cumbersome snow blouses or whatever, those those snow smocks. It's just not even satisfying in the way that a shitty horror movie can be satisfying. I mean, the TNA, the blood, the pacing, the the frequency of the kills, all of it fails, total fails here. And there's no aliens. There's no mystical thing that's happening that's making this exciting other than we see a hand every now and then come into frame and bring a corpse to life. Yeah, we don't even get a, any weird demon shots or Satans like we did in the last film. Right, that putty face. I would have been happy for any of that. A greaser, anything. I was begging for anything that I had seen in the last one. Hell, Lance Hendrickson on puppet strings. Give me something fantastical here. Give me something to laugh at or enjoy. This movie is as drab and barren as the landscape that they're supposedly sequestered in. Yeah, I really wish that there was something more here in the way of suspense. If there was a bit of intrigue, someone among us isn't who they say they are. But because we know there are dead bodies out and about wandering around, I never even suspect Shaboski is doing anything because I assume it's Schilling and all his zombie friends. What's worse than me not suspecting is the characters don't suspect. They all completely trust each other. They all gather around the TV. Shaboski's too damn scared to go in the mine, so they get this remote control car, which I tried not to go all Batman Returns, scratch the CD with the functionality of this Radio Shack remote control (laughs) unit and how deep underground that RF signal would work because I had that car with that same controller. It didn't work at the end of my goddamn driveway. I I was thinking the same thing, Arnie. I'm like, no way this is going to work. I'm just going to give it it. And how they're using the antenna on the RC unit to transmit the video signal. Oh, all right, I'm not going to get there. Yeah, there, it, this is not where you attack the movie's <laughs> problems. I'm a techie. It bugged the shit out of me. But what bugged me more? No suspense. No intrigue. Well, what bugged me is I'm a film guy and a James Cameron fan, and that was totally lifted from the abyss, where they had the little guy going down into finding where the, the water creatures were. I mean, and it had the nuke on him. Uh, you know, this movie isn't even... Uh, coming up with original ideas within the framework of the John Carpenter story. I mean, give me something new. I mean, give me an image, something, something unusual. And and it isn't. It's incredibly dull movie. It's, it's incredibly unimaginative. I can see why they would want to make this a part three of something rather than release it as it's a standalone effort. And I do think part of the problem is these sets. I mean, they're having to have standoffs with people that are two or three feet away from them, and the blockade is like a chair between them. (laughs) But I guess it's a good way to fall in love, because apparently that's what's happening between Faith Ward and Cage. Only because they tell us, though. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything between them. And like you said, I'm willing to say that Cage is insane, and maybe he's feeling something that the doctor isn't but that she's reciprocating 
I don't get that in any of their performances. Right. I mean, I guess from a story standpoint, it's a parallel to what happened with Mary because this woman is going to end up on the sacrificial altar again and Schilling is going to try and sacrifice her just like he did Mary. Uh, but you got to justify it a little. I mean, they've got to have some – they have one scene here where she insists he's a good man. She has no evidence or backup proof of that, but she insists to him that he's a good man when he's doubting himself after he tells her that he's basically the half-brother of the murderer. And that's enough to believe that the foundation has been laid for them to fall in love. By the end of this, they're literally declaring their love. I wouldn't be surprised if they're taking that chopper straight to a Vegas chapel. <laughs> and he, he gives her his dead fiance's ring. I mean, yeah, cheap bastard. Just recycle <laughs> yeah. that ring. Yeah. At, you know, towards the end here, Cage, I guess his demon side's taken over. I don't know. His pupils are all black and big and he's supposed to kill wells and she just yells out i love you like i wrote down really like i i had no idea that there was some kind of romance going on between them it was not since just- short round got indy <laughs> <laughs> give up the blood of collie have i been so moved <laughs> that was way more believable than this you're right and plus there was like a, a torch or something involved there too yes. i have no idea <laughs> when people get possessed their allegiances to evil their renunciation of evil it's not in the performances it's not in the writing it's just not there at all not only does none of this make sense but i need a big bad in this movie i really do Schilling has been kind of hiding around the edges and hiding out in the caves but if you're gonna raise satan All right, do it. Raise Satan. I need a demon that looks demonic. I need somebody worse than what has not been scaring me for the past 80 minutes. No, we're not going to get anything. No, those 15-year-old greasers were scarier than Schilling. He he never demons out. Like, don't they just hit him with a pickaxe and he dies? They throw a grenade in there? Like, that's how you defeat a demon? Just stab it like a human? Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's a sad day when we're begging for an end boss giant puppet, but that would have given me something <laughs> to care about. So how does Cage kill Schilling then? Is it just because they learned that these undead are like vampires? Faith Ford stabbed one through a heart and it actually stayed dead. And so in this final fight, Cage, does he stab Schilling in the heart? It's it's all so close up, I can't really tell what they're doing. Yeah, the, the pickaxe did go into the heart, and, you know, if, if you weren't sure if he was going to die, we did get the goo. That, that's a sure sign that the monster's dead. The hair gel spurting out. <laughs> and then the most confusing scene in a confusing movie. Mary returns. <laughs> I, I do love this. It's like, hey, dead fiancé, fuck you for leaving me. I'm taking off with this chicken. I, she's got your ring. I don't know how we're supposed to take the return of Mary. Like, they, we have no allegiance to her. We don't feel anything for her. We saw her a few brief flashbacks, and she took off with her brother. I mean, who cares if she returned? Yeah, is she giving her blessing for this new union? I mean, she's probably relieved that this guy's not crushing on her for another 70 years. It's like, now she can finally die in peace. Is is she releasing him from his torment? She died thinking he was in on her death, and now, because he killed his brother at Satan's portal, somehow the spirit of Mary knows and forgives him? Yeah, we have no idea because nothing's said. All there, all there is is, I think on this cheap key, Casio keyboard I have, I have the same synth effects where I can make that <laughs> heavenly chorus sound. 
Well, are you going to make a heavenly chorus for this film or just thank the angels it's over? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend our listeners come back for more? Jacob? Oh, how I wish it was over. But what I'm learning from this Night Shift series is that there's not a bottom. Like every time I think, okay, Mangler, not going to get any worse than that, right? It just, it keeps getting worse. And I, I don't know how that happens. Like this, I, now is this worse than Mangler 3? I don't know. Maybe this is much more incomprehensible. Mangler Reborn, I at least knew what was going on in that film. Here, it, it's such a confusing film and it's not exciting. There's no, even on that, again, that base level, seeing some cool kills. Uh, the zombies here are boring. The, the action's confusing. It's convoluted. This, this whole story, the way they try to tie this up as a trilogy is just, laughably absurd no this is not a recommend this is another strong not recommend for this night shift series i i'm really dreading when we get to children of the corn now how how bad how far can it really sink it stops at level six jacob that's as deep as it goes (laughs) well there's nine of those corn films so i'm sure we'll find another level get your shovel stewart I think it is our job to try and find the gradients between how horrible these are. Yes, all of them are going to be terrible, Jacob. This is what I was trying to warn you about way back when we were first doing this and, and Cat's Eye and telling you to maybe be a little bit more kinder <laughs> to those obviously much better efforts than what we've been getting lately. I'll still say that this sometimes series is much better than The Mangler, but, uh, you know, still a terrible film. So uh, how would I rank them? I think that two is the most fun as far as trash goes. One is just kind of sappy. And this third one, well, it's as bad as The Mangler sequels. It's as bad as Mangler 2, not as bad as Mangler 3, not as bad as Mangler, actually. I, I think I think that Mangler is still towing the line as being the very bottom of... Oh, at this. least that has some fun absurdity. I, I'm thinking fondly of the Mangler now after watching this one. <laughs> Want to go back and join me in the Green Arrow Club? Not going to join the Green Arrow Club, but yes, gradients of awfulness, as Stuart said. Yeah, we're, we're trying to parse it all out here. Yeah, these are boring. I think that's what I want to stress. With the exception of this second one... These sometimes movies are really dull. I mean, sometimes they're dull like a TV movie touched by an angel episode, and sometimes they're dull because they don't have any money and they don't have anything to show, like this one, but they're just not that exciting. Whereas Mangler, I guess you could make the case that its awfulness was its own kind of entertainment. These are just completely forgettable. I see why they don't have any iconic characters here. There's there's nothing to hold on to here. If you saw these before, you wouldn't remember them the next day, and so... I feel good about that. I know that I'm going to be working this through my system and, and we'll never have to think about these again. They'll not make another one. There will be no more. And I don't have to worry about a part four coming down the road. This series is over and I'm over it. Strong or not recommend. Well, to respond to both of your recommends before going into my own or both of your not recommends, if I should be more specific, Jacob, I disagree. I disagree that we keep digging deeper. I think when all is said and done, Graveyard Shift is going to be the absolute bottom that we skimmed and everything else. I mean, Mangler had some really bad fun in the first one and some, well, at least Lance Hendrickson on wires in the second one. The third one, it had no money. I mean, here at least with sometimes they come back for more, they had no money, but it looks and feels a lot more professional than that Mangler film. The third Mangler felt like a student film or an indie. This at least feels, God help me, just really low budget, but 
professional. I, I wouldn't use that word professional. They got Faith <laughs> Ford and a snow machine. That's, otherwise, I see a lot of similarities between the two. But as far as this one goes, yeah, it's a strong not recommend because, like you said, Stuart, it's just so god-awful dull. Mm-hmm. I found myself really struggling to pay attention for that second half an hour and then really going back to and forcing myself to rewatch the flashback scenes to make sure I could discuss it for this podcast. Notice I've gone back and I've rewatched a lot of shitty movies a second time just to make sure I have a full handle on the narrative. This time I cherry picked <laughs> because I couldn't do it. I couldn't sit through this again. It was just dull. And so it's a strong strong not recommend but it's more just for being arduous than for being terrible it 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 is completely bland and forgettable it's doesn't make me want to spit it out it just doesn't make me want to talk about it either yeah agreed there's just nothing to this one at all and other than the second one i don't feel like this entire series had anything that i'd constitute as fun and as far as ranking this series i'd probably go one and two in a tight neck and neck race, but I'll give one the edge because it has a lot of other King callbacks. It feels like King. Two doesn't feel at all like King, even though Mm-mm. it did take some stuff from his book, but it has the wonderfully hammy Alexis Arquette performance. And this, this has nothing for me to hold on to. So one, two, three is my ranking for sometimes they come back, though I won't. Yeah, right. And, and we get to move on. We don't need, we're not even coming back to King next week. It's Spider-Man time. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is out this Friday. And so <laughs> I bet nothing could make you look forward to the sequel to that amazing <laughs> Spider-Man film more than the films we've been reviewing, Stuart, because I remember what you said about that first one. No, it's true. I've been, dre- this is the one superhero film of summer that I just do not want to see. I can't wait to see it. I can't bring it on next week. Week. Amazing Spider-Man 2. I, anything other than a greaser. <laughs> There's no greaser that Spider-Man fights, right? Well, his friend Harry Osborn does kind of have a greasy hairdo I've seen in the trailers. Yeah, he certainly does. <laughs> and that's not all. This Friday, we're also getting to part two of our Silver Donation series with the Animatrix. I don't even know what that is. Well, you will find out very quickly. Cause I love it already, though. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't have a greaser, right? No washing machines? Oh, there's machines. Yeah, I don't think any of them are doing your laundry, though. But they are evil, so maybe you'll feel a mangler callback there. Yes, The Matrix is our silver-level donation series for a donation of $10 or more. The money goes to support this show and bring you the podcast we do every single week. And as our thank you... You will get five bonus podcasts, four Matrix podcasts, The Matrix, The Animatrix, The Matrix Reloaded, and The Matrix Revolutions. And then, later this summer, the new Wachowski Brothers film, Jupiter Ascending. And if you really want to support our show, help us out, donate $25 or more, you're going to get eight more bonus podcasts, a total of 13 bonus podcasts, as we go ape. That's true. I'm looking forward to this. I've only probably seen about half of them, but it's just one of those series that when you talk about science fiction, I mean, it's a pillar. It's a big one. Starting with Heston, ending with Gary Oldman. We got a lot of actors that we know and a lot of people in some not always convincing ape makeup, (laughs) but I'm really looking forward to even the G-rated 
middle ones from the 70s. I, I, I'm curious to find out how this series is going to go. I think it's going to be a fun adventure. I think we're going to see a lot of different styles. I think what Tim Burton brings is going to be different from what James Franco brings. Is what's different from what they brought in the 60s and 70s. And then on the main feed after Amazing Spider-Man, we're going to do a little bit more King. I mean, if we're going to be talking about Neo and the Matrix, we also have to talk about Job and the Neural Net with the Lawnmower Man, another Stephen King short story. Kind of. Please don't sue us for saying that. That's <laughs> true. He did have sue to scratch his name off. Can I sue for you making me watch this twice? <laughs> As long as he doesn't sue us for calling it part of the Stephen King retrospective series. We'll figure that out when we do Lawnmower Man in two weeks. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And next week we'll come back for Spider-Man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Sometimes They Come Back retrospective series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can't run away from this. This evil will follow you wherever you go. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another film based off the works of Stephen King. Bring the wife and kid. It's fun for the whole family. Ah! <laughs> And in the archives section, you can find reviews of more Stephen King films, including Carrie, The Shining, The Mangler, Salem's Lot, plus other movie reviews of series like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, Star Trek, The Avengers, Transformers, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. It's a trap! He wants you to go down there! And also visit our sister podcast at booksandnachos.com where you can hear reviews of the original Stephen King books and stories on which these films are based. Sissies with books. Read me a story, sissy. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Mind giving me a hand? <laughs> you can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. No matter what the pain and the cost, I'll pay it. Please, please help me. And head over to our website to find out how your donation can get you bonus podcast reviews of The Matrix and Planet of the Apes movies, as well as this summer's new movie, Jupiter Ascending. These bonus podcasts are only available to those who donate a minimum amount before July 31st, 2014. Find the details of our spring donation drive at nowplayingpodcast.com. You want to give that to me? Oh, I'd love to give it to you. Now Playing's Sometimes They Come Back retrospective series is edited by Dylan, Phil, and Arnie. If I had known the horror we were facing, I would have run from this town forever. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. No one does a tongue tango like I do, sweetheart. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is now affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. None of us are here officially. You know, they know that, that our country would just sweep us under the rug. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Do I get extra credit for 
Now playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. If they're unhappy enough, something's left unsettled, sometimes they come back. Yes, and on the day of the portal, you can raise Satan himself, or as I put in my notes, Stan himself. <laughs> I'm gonna. Not are are oh, we ready for the for the climax? I think we've actually yeah, yeah, succeeded. That's what I was gonna get into. How long have we been going? Forty nine minutes. Forty nine minutes. Yeah. Forty nine. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, the ending here. I got an end. I, I, guys, I'm having a real problem. Do you guys know who Peter Schilling is? No. He Name's did, familiar. He did the sequel to David Bowie's Major Tom. And so what, I didn't get this in the movie, but now when we're talking about Schilling, I just keep thinking, ground control to Major Tom. It's freaking me out. But that is David Bowie's to Major Tom. Yeah, he did the other one. He did the sequel. Yes, that one. Yeah, okay. I know that. I didn't know his name was Schilling. I'm I'm stunned that you you must have owned the CD. That's yes, the only I do. Reason. Yes, okay, I do. I was like, there's no reason to know that name. <laughs> okay, there it is. It's a good CD. He's German. Mm. What I'm learning from this King retrospective, at least these, is this Night Yard or Graveyard? The Gra- book. Gra- uh, night Shift. Night Shift. Night Shift. <laughs> what, a, yes. what is this shit that I'm saying there? <laughs> yeah, what Yard are you even stick? watching? What I'm learning from this Night Shift series. <laughs> night Shift. Here, yeah. yeah. I wish it was. What's the slurring more appropriate. Yes. Revolutions? Yep. Not revelations? It's some revolutions. It's either no. one or two revolutions. It's revolutions. Okay. Is it plural? Because okay. it goes nowhere. <laughs> it just goes around and around. <laughs> Hello, Mrs. Norman. Can Jimmy come out and play? <laughs>